Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and this is the third episode about patients' perspective on healthcare and digital health. In the first two episodes, you were able to listen to two entrepreneurs whose disease triggered their entrepreneurial journey. In the first episode, Roy Sternin from Israel talked about the problems of people with poorly defined conditions. As time went by, I felt more and more oppressed, and I grew more and more frustrated and, and lonely. And eventually, I, I lost all trust and belief in my doctors. And I believe they lost trust and believe in me because they didn't believe I actually have something anymore, you know, after all this testing and admissions and trying. So when you look at it from both perspectives, it's a miscommunication, but you can actually understand both sides, yeah. The second episode, Marina Borukovic presented her cancer patient journey takes more than one person to heal you. Uh, we, we ebb and flow as people and at different points in our lives we may need different things. So, you know, I needed boxing at first and maybe I needed meditation later and maybe I needed somebody to help me with my nutrition at some point or sleep management. And all that just ebbs and flows and there's no reason to assume that one person can be there for you to help with that all. It takes a squad, it takes a village. And today, you will be listening to Bettina Ril, who has been an active patient advocate for the last eight years. Bettina is the founder of Melanoma Patient Network Europe, a cancer mission board member at the European Commission, and the former chair of the ESMO Patient Advocates Working Group. As you will hear her describe, patient advocacy differs between the US and Europe. She also talked about the influence patients can have and shared her personal story when her husband was diagnosed with melanoma. As always, you can find the recap of the show on our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com and find the direct link in the show notes. If you're not a subscriber yet, I encourage you to become one and be notified about new episodes automatically. In the next episode, also a part of this patient series, you will hear Grace Cordovano talk about patient advocacy in the US and what you as a patient can do when you find yourself in the healthcare system for the first time. But first, patient advocacy in Europe with Bettina Riel. Bettina, when I was preparing for this interview, a thought went through my mind. When I was looking for patients that could talk for this series, I came across cancer patients very often. And I thought, oh my God, we keep talking about cancer when we are talking about chronic conditions. And then I came across this video from cancer patients. And a lot of the people that were in that video, they kind of complained a little bit saying that, okay, yes, we 
would really really like to see more rare cancers being in the limelight because we keep talking only about lung cancer and prostate cancer and breast cancer so this really made me think how it seems that we have this inner perception that specific diseases are not heard enough and I'm sure that if we looked at the broader context any cancer patient would say that it's not talked enough about diseases in society so perhaps a comment from your side I think one has to be very, very careful with one's own perception because, you know, if you live a normal life and you're healthy or, well, let's say, let's put it that way, you don't know yet that you're sick, you don't go looking out for information about about cancers and definitely not about rare cancers. So I think it is very easy to get a wrong impression of what is covered and what isn't covered. So we have some of our colleagues in advocacy, like especially the breast cancer community, has been organized for many, many years, and they have been very good at inventing really good visuals. So I think that's why they're quite present in everyone's memory or everyone's perception. Or if you look at Movember, which is quite, you know, like it has a has an appeal to it. So I think it is very easy to believe there is nothing out for you when you're diagnosed with something that does not fall into these very big categories. I'm very, very careful about it because I do believe that we should not be pitching patients against each other. It's not about one being more important than the other. And I do believe that uh, we've been doing that too much in the past. And some people have used that to pitch patients or patient advocacy groups against each other. I do believe that some initiatives are more vocal or more visible. And I would say that in my own community, I can see the differences in motivation when it comes to advocacy. So I ended up in advocacy because my husband was diagnosed with stage four melanoma out of nowhere. So one day he was healthy and the next day he had advanced melanoma. And in our community, it, especially in the past, it's slowly changing now, but especially in the past, it was those with advanced disease who were the most active. And of course, that then sets the focus. And earlier stage patients who have a very high chance of being cured try to go back to their normal lives as fast as possible. And that's understandable too. So I think it's a mixture of a perception issue so that we see what we're looking for, our personal drive, our personal motivation. And uh, I think one has to just has to be a little bit careful with saying, well, no one cares about us. No one thinks we're important. Um, I don't think that's the right approach to advocacy. I, I agree. And I also think that um, it's good that patient groups are out there, you know, because they can offer tremendous support, which at the same time doesn't mean that just because you're a patient, you necessarily have to be very active in that group. But it's very comforting to know that there is a group of people that you can turn to if you have any questions or if you're looking for support from those that had similar problems than you. Before we continue, let's just try to define a patient advocacy a little bit. How would you describe it or how would you define it? Actually, it turns out to be not quite so straightforward. So we've been having discussions in our community for a long while, and I've been chairing the ESMO Patient Advocacy Working Group. So that's the European Society for Medical Oncology. And one of the first tasks we got was actually just that, writing a definition of what a patient advocate is. And we came up with some kind of like quite basic one. And I think it's still standing. And for me, the most important difference between a patient and a patient advocate is that a patient is someone who's concerned with themselves. So they are trying to find support, information, 
treatment options for themselves. And uh, of course, the carer would then be someone who's focused on that single person. The moment you start widening your focus and start worrying about others and including others in your scope, that's for me is the point where you make this intellectual and mental switch in becoming a patient advocate. And for me, patient advocacy is a quite, I mean, this is something that how we use patient advocacy in, in, in Europe. A patient advocate in the US would be something different where they are often like something like a personal guide for a patient navigating a patient through a healthcare system. And we would probably rather call such a person a navigator. But a patient advocate in European terms, I think it is quite important to realize that with any disease, there are so many issues and they can range from simple emotional support, just being there for someone else who needs just someone who understands to very, very different things. You could be involved in research or policy. And in order to make a difference for patients, we have to spend the entire spectrum. So I do believe what falls then under patient advocacy can look very, very different and can contain very different things. But for me, it's this focus. It's not just about yourself anymore. It is about people in your situation that makes the difference between a simple patient and someone who should be considered a patient advocate. I must admit that I myself, before starting to work on this series, I considered patient advocacy more as not exactly a lobbyist organization or organizing, but a focus on trying to change the whole system or trying to influence policies or help the industry understand specific problems of a specific patient group. And it was also very interesting to me when I came across your description and it uh, said that you you were involved in numerous initiatives promoting evidence-based advocacy. You know, so my first thought was, what is evidence-based advocacy? So I think first to go back to the first step, I believe that, I mean, at least in our network, the way we see our role is that we do support single patients. So it is becoming less and less than when I started MPNE, so the Melanoma Patient Network Europe. There was no European organization in melanoma and many countries didn't have melanoma groups. So there was no place for people to go and we took a lot of care of them. So now the country groups are getting stronger and I am very, very glad that now people can get support and help in their own language, which I think is is really, really important, especially if you live in a place like Europe. So there's one side so that there's direct support. And I believe that's an important part of the work that patient advocacy organizations do. But we all have to realize we're not reaching every single patient. Not everyone finds us. Maybe not everyone wants to talk to us. And that's totally okay. And in order to protect everyone, you need the systemic work, like you just said. So that's when you end up do, like influencing research strategies or work on the policy level, because that will then, of course, protect everyone affected by that change. So I think one needs both sides, the direct one, as well as the more abstract and more encompassing strategy. To go back to the topic of evidence-based advocacy. So I think like most of us, and especially in Europe, most of us patient advocates are volunteers, and most of us ended in patient advocacy because we had a personal relation or a personal connection to that disease. As I said earlier on, my husband was diagnosed with metastatic melanoma in 2011, and that's my connection. That was my way into patient advocacy. So we all have this very strong drive and motivation that comes from personal experience. And it is very easy to be carried away with that because it has affected our lives so much that a lot of people drive on that story and our story has power as such. However, it is quite easy to forget that we are just 
one story. And then there are many other people with different stories that are equally valid, but can be quite different from our own. And if it then comes to this policy level work that I mentioned earlier, where we're not just supposed to or not supporting a single person, but try to affect change for everyone, I believe that it is critical that we're not just driven by our own story, but have an accurate understanding of what is going on in any situation. And for that, you need evidence. So evidence goes both ways. So if you are, for example, you want a certain, you believe that a certain treatment is better than another one, and then believe is just simply not the right word. You want to be supporting your claim with evidence. That's a form of evidence-based advocacy so that you can say that these studies have shown that or that it is something that a guideline recommends so that you know how these things operate. When it comes to talking about our own opinions, if you like, it is about trying to understand what your group means and to see whether your own opinion is an outlier maybe or whether there are groups um, to give you a concrete example because this is quite abstract now is we have adjuvant treatment in melanoma right now and what that means is that you have if you have a stage 3 melanoma where melanoma has spread to the regional lymph nodes you will get surgery and then will get a treatment or not and some people will go for this treatment at any cost and are willing to accept a lot of side effects with it while others will say, well, I might never progress, so I'm not going to take the risk of having the side effects. And each position in a way is valid, but you can't have both at the same time. So I think it is dealing with this discrepancy in our own communities and being fair on every patient, because in the end we have to be, that is that should be our goal, to be fair by the individual and not having some average opinion because that would be unfair by everyone so i think that is like so the motivation behind evidence-based advocacy what do you see as the role of technology in changing the patient advocacy for example new cancer registries new discoveries new ways of drug discoveries and clinical trials are changing with new technologies and i'm wondering what's your perspective if you try to look at the whole time that you've been present in patient advocacy? Well, I think that it is valid to say that technology has changed not just patient advocacy, but society. I would say it started with the internet. Uh, when I went to medical school, if you wanted to read a publication, you had to go to the library and we would sit at the photocopy machine and take these big dusty books out and then photocopy articles. If I tell this to my daughters now, they just laugh. I mean, today you download it and print it at home or even probably don't print at all anymore. So I think the first revolution was that today it is easier than ever before to access professional great knowledge. Um, that's one thing. So that education has completely changed over like a very short, well, a couple of years, basically. So that's the first thing that I think has has changed the environment in, in, in cancer. And with that, I think with a more empowered patient population, you get different demands. And it's not just about the learning. It's also you have so many like online tools for collaboration. So our network is spread all over Europe, but we use a lot of these tools directly. And some of that would have just been simply impossible. So I believe we have a general empowerment of patients. And that's not just valid for cancer. That's true for, for all of us. And then I think the kind of threshold has changed. If you look what the um, diabetes community is doing right now with their self 
hospital open uh, rehearsal open artificial pancreas systems where they have built like monitors and have like closed feedbacks so to optimize their blood sugar levels i think that's a very very impressive way how patients have used technology for their own benefit and that is totally patient driven if we now go more into like let's say clinical trials or clinical research i think information has always been a critical factor in there finding these trials the exchange and the knowledge exchange i think has greatly accelerated so what we now see in terms of discussion and the speed with which things move is, is promising for us, is promising for everyone who needs progress. And that's, of course, before we touch on any type of, let's say, technologies that go into next generation sequencing and our understanding of cellular um, level processes um, that has become really, really important in, in, in cancer, that in the effect, like even a single person is not a single disease, but actually is a home is like a heterogeneous group of cells that we're trying to kill and that maybe our approaches before were just simply too blunt so i think it's like and you can elaborate on that level after level after level so the next one would then be artificial intelligence so how can we make sense of that complexity because that's too much for a single human brain so we have to build the tools to help us understand what's going on so um we live in exciting times and uh, my my wish is as patient advocate of course is that it's never going fast enough because we still have people dying therefore therefore the pressure Absolutely. You held many different positions by today. You were a member of the Mission Board for Cancer at the European Commission. You also founded the uh, Melanoma Patient Advocacy, was the chair of European Society for Medical Oncology Patient Advocate Working Groups, and then you also founded the European Melanoma Network. So can you tell me more about the differences between all of these roles? So because this organization differ quite a lot in their target audiences. So European Commission is more like legislative body, whereas European Society for Medical Oncology is more focused on the connection between pharma and doctors. And then, of course, the advocacy groups are completely patient-centric. So just in brief, how do these uh, roles differ through your eyes, also in terms of their impact? Well, I think, you know, I don't see them so distinct from each other. They have just evolved from one into the other. So um, I started the Melanoma Patient Network Europe because at the time there was just nothing in that space. And um, I had made a friend also with melanoma um, when my husband uh, was diagnosed and she had tried to get for, for the first time melanoma patients from across Europe together, but there was no organization or no network there was nothing and then when she died I kind of inherited it and I was just not willing to let all that work and enthusiasm going to waste and at the time I was working full-time at university as a researcher here so this is kind of how I moved into it it was never really like oh I took from today I'm an advocate it was more like I'm not willing to let this just go to waste and from there it grew and in hindsight it looks as if it had been the great plan but it was more a stepwise process so what is the next need what are we doing and from that grew and from the very beginning the a challenge in melanoma had been clinical trial design and I think this is the less linked to the next thing that was the ESMO patient advocacy working group because I was very interested in and because of my background uh, was w very interested in research and education. I did a lot of scientific education for patient advocates. So to explain what are the latest studies about, what has been discussed at the major conferences, how does that affect us? What does that mean now for the next step in our treatment journey? 
And I do believe that that was the reason that I was, um, I don't know, you'll have to verify with Esmo, but that is what I assume was the reason why they contacted me as the first chair of this working group who was not an oncologist. So previous chairs had always been oncologists. And from there, I, well, I developed a new patient advocacy track at the annual conferences because in the past it had always been some kind of add-on meeting, like hidden somewhere in the conference. And I never got my head around the fact that patient advocates would attend a scientific meeting, but then just talk to each other instead of going to the scientific sessions and meeting other healthcare professionals. So that was my big ambition with a, a novel um, concept. And I think we have made, I mean, huge progress in, in that topic. So uh, patient advocates can now be as more members and uh, the advocacy track in the last years has been a real success and we have now collaborations with different like working groups within ESMO and uh, I actually have uh, in January this year I have joined the faculty for immuno-oncology um, um, in, in ESMO so the connection is still there and the term is always two plus two years so after these uh, four years was over and I think it's important to change have new faces new ideas so now it's up to the next to build on it and develop it further. So that was that. But it was more, it was still cancer and it was pan cancer. And after that, we realized that we really needed this forum to work together between different cancers because we invested all a lot of time to work on the same problem, but in, in parallel. And we felt that we needed to be smart about it because, of course, resources are limited for all of us. So we founded a working group for the European Cancer Patient Advocacy Networks uh, called Weekend. And um, that is to help each other. So to find out what the others are doing, to learn from each other, to compensate, because we all have different talents, different professional backgrounds. So if we all together, we make a fabulous team, but, you know, everyone by themselves misses something. So um, I think it's more thinking about how you can strategically advance your cause and with whom you work, because lots of problems are not specific to melanoma, but they affect all cancer patients or they affect even all patients. And last summer, it was actually uh, two friends, independently of each other, who encouraged me to uh, apply for the Cancer Mission Board, uh, which is ongoing. So I am on the Mission Board right now, and it will, ongo will be going on for this uh, entire year. And the goal of this of this Mission Board is to develop a proposal for the European Commission for the next round of Horizon funding. And uh, for this time, they're very, very ambitious. So that's why they are favoring all their... This time, the approach will be a mission-based approach. So it's not going to be supposed to be a single or simple research proposal as in the well research program to be fair um, in the past but the demand is to develop a mission so it has to be a research proposal supported with additional actions like policy actions in order to to reach the goal which obviously is going to be to significantly reduce the number of cancer um, like death but also to lessen the impact of cancer on our societies but it's kind of a transition from one interest and then developed to need and then you look for people like collaborators people similar or complementing interests and this is how it kind of evolved so it was never that I set out and uh, went out selecting it's more it was more I see it as a natural evolution actually so how do you see the power that you have uh, as a patient advocate uh, in terms of cancer treatments? There's new and new coming on the market almost every day. And um, there's also a lot of very expensive treatments, which of course raises the question of affordability. So given your uh, very broad reach, so you've been working or researching the status in the whole Europe, 
Europe, what kind of differences do you notice when it comes to accessibility to medications or to support that cancer patients get? So first the thing that is power is maybe not the right expression uh, when it comes to patient advocacy. I don't think that patient advocacy is about real control because in most, um, so first in which entity do you think you have control? So even, I mean, patient involvement right now is quite fashionable, but I can ensure you, even if there are patients in the room, they always make sure that you are in the minority. So, you know, you can never vote anyone down. I don't think that at this moment we are about power. I, however, believe that the tool we're having, and it's a very important one, is the one of influence. So while if you're the single one in the room, everyone can vote you down, you can still speak up. So the influence we're having and the impact we can uh, we we can have, and I think that links back to evidence-based advocacy, is presenting good arguments that highlight the plight of patients and provide an additional perspective on one side. So I do think that we can give insight that no one else owns. Every cancer patient, and probably that's true for any patient, will tell you that they had no idea before they were diagnosed what this situation would be like. I can tell you I have a medical degree. Um, I had no idea what metastatic cancer would be like. So it is a real eye-opener. And if we as patients don't share that perspective I mean, how does the other side ever find out? And how can we expect them to know while we know about ourselves that we had no idea prior to the disease? So I, th I see that as our responsibility to share that perspective. At the same time, I do believe that um, it is also our job to propose solutions and to keep the pressure on. Because if you're in a room with different stakeholders, I mean, they agree, they disagree, they go home to dinner to their families and to their normal lives. For us, that can be our people are dying. So I do believe that our great... Our great, well, power is, as I said, not the right word, but our tool is to keep the pressure on and to never lose that sense of urgency. It is easy to say, okay, we discuss this next year when you're healthy. By that time, our people will be dead. So I think that urgency is what makes us so valuable in many, many contexts. Now, come back to the to the accessibility. That's unfortunately one of the biggest, biggest, biggest issues uh, that we are currently facing. And sometimes um, you're just plain, well, unfortunate, like it was the case in melanoma, where the traditional chemotherapy, which is quite cheap, um, just does not work. And you need the new drugs in order to have a chance to get out of a life. So it's not that you could choose something cheaper instead. It's not about being fancy or wanting something totally out of the ordinary. You just want something that works and you're unfortunate enough to have that something is extremely expensive. So um, it's the accessibility uh, debate is is one of the hardest thing I found to to get my head around because in Europe and we're such a tiny space, it's a few hundred kilometers that can make the difference whether you have a chance to survive a disease like melanoma or whether you don't. And as a European, I find this entirely unacceptable. So we have to find a solution how we can make these novel and promising therapies more accessible and that in a faster and in a fairer way. Now, um, that's just a part of the discussion. I could basically talk an entire day about that. So did you ever see that a patient would move to another country or what are the most radical measures that patients took to get access to specific drugs, which, as you mentioned, can depend on based on which country you live in? We did ourselves. So we to go abroad for clinical trials. So you even don't know whether it's working or not, because it's still in a clinical trial, but the trial is your best chance. So you 
go in a clinical trial abroad. Um, people sell property. They uh, lend money from friends and family uh, to, to, to pay for it. And we are not quite as bad as the US, but uh, we're getting there, I would say. So it is. it very much depends on the disease situation. But I can tell you even in some melanoma has gotten a tiny little bit better. But now if you look at rare melanomas, there are just a handful of trials in Europe that are interesting right now. And if you're not living in that country, the only chance to have access is to move there. Sometimes you can travel, go back and forth. Some people live close to the trial site for a couple of months. Um, but that, that is already, that's already our reality. And uh, I don't think it's going to get any better. And everything gets, we have touched upon rare conditions before. I do believe that rare exemplifies that problem. You, we cannot, I mean, if a condition is very, very rare, and especially when you live in a small country, now I live in Sweden, we are 10 million, to expect that you have a specialist for every rare condition on this planet is just not going to happen. So I believe in international collaboration, especially for the rare conditions, because that's the only way how we can accumulate sufficient knowledge on one side. But that also means that we have to get the patients there. So either the patients have to travel or we have we have to set up systems in order to take care of these patients so that you could have like, you know, that they only occasionally have to travel and then you have some type of telemedicine or some collaboration between a local partner and a partner abroad. So I do think that we're going to change our system. There's quite a few startups that are trying to increase access to clinical trials because even finding an appropriate clinical trial for the disease that you have can be challenging. Uh, so leaving aside what, uh, what the industry is offering, I really would wish to know in what kind of approach are patients looking for clinical trials at the moment? How do patients find clinical trials? So I think the first step is there first to decide is whether you need a clinical trial. Now, that's not an obvious one. Uh, I've never met a patient who goes on a clinical trial for the fun of going on a clinical trial. People go on a clinical trial because the standard of care, they either all therapies no longer work or the standard of care is not useful. So it's always an act of desperation. So that's the first thing to understand. So for us, clinical trials are treatment options. And then, of course, you it comes the usual complaints that there are many trials that don't recruit. I don't think it is that simple because it's not that every trial should recruit. I always say there's the good, the bad and the ugly, like everywhere in life. And that also applies to clinical trials. So just because it's a clinical trial doesn't mean it's a good one. And uh, so the real thing is not just finding because there is like Google for clinical trials. So once you have found it and have spent some time on learning how you navigate it, you find these trials. The art is in choosing the trial. So it's not the finding, it's the choosing, which is the critical bit. And for that part, you have to understand what's currently going on in terms of research and where the edge is and what which of these different options is the most promising one for you in that specific situation. So in order to enable that, that's the reason actually why we do so much scientific education. So we have nearly daily posts on our forum on updates in melanoma, and we do a lot of training at conferences or face-to-face -face meetings, but also over any other type we can think of. So we take new advocates to conferences and walk them through how one attends a conference, how you can get most out of the conference, how you which sessions give you what type of information. We take people to, like, we think that debates are particularly 
good tool for education because you see a topic like looked at from different sides and from an education perspective that's highly valuable so we spend a lot of time training just for that very reason because otherwise i mean it's just like it's a bit of roulette and i don't think you should ever be playing roulette when it comes uh, to your life There's a lot of efforts or thoughts that clinical trials are going to be radically uh, redefined with uh, new inventions and new technologies. For example, one of the things that pharma has to deal with is that clinical trials are currently running in very, very carefully designed settings. Patients are very carefully chosen. And the hope is that with uh, new technologies, wearables uh, and IT devices, there could be some sort of a merging of clinical trials in the clinical setting with clinical trials running while you're at home and you're observed with all these devices, which could in turn also perhaps accelerate the accuracy of the drugs and decrease the difference between the clinical results data and real world data. What's your comment regarding that perspective or hope? Well, I think one has to be a little bit careful because they are often like different things mixed up. So I do, I think, for example, a phase one, when we give a new drug to patients for the first time, I don't think that this will ever end up in a home setting because the risk is just so high. So these, these kind of more real world setting trials will always be in later phases where we're a little bit less worried about the side effect um, being so bad that it could kill someone. So I think that's one point to, to be aware of. I think variables have some really interesting aspects as in the moment, for example, the way we capture quality of life is by asking people to fill out questionnaires. And if you really think about it, that's a terrible way to do it because it's intermittent. So you're only asked every three weeks, then you're asked in a specific setting. I mean, now people are already asking people, for example, at home, but it's still just a snapshot and it's always in hindsight. So people recall from memory and it's just like there's so many layers of why this is not accurate. And therefore, I think there's quite a lot of hope that, for example, if you just simply measure activity, You can see if someone is well and moves a lot or if someone all of a sudden stops moving. So are these things I think are really, really valuable because I think they will give us a better, like a more, like a bit like a microscope into a patient's life and give us hopefully a better understanding of what medicine really means for that patient. So um, I think it's a quite uh, exciting development. I still don't believe that this will then all of a sudden mean that we just have every patient at home uh, and we don't need centers anymore. I don't think that we will be going there. I know that uh, we had an interesting discussion on that topic in a forum and some people really like, for example, that they don't have to go to hospital to get their perfusions once everything is set up and that then someone comes to their place and they quite like that. While others think that they, <laughs> that that's a totally horrendous idea because they said the last thing I want at my home is more hospital, as in hospital moving in with me. So I think it's a kind of interesting I think about to, to think of how people think about it. Do you yeah. want it convenient? Or do you think this is an you know invasion of your privacy? You have a medical degree, and um, I wonder when your husband he got discovered with the mal- melanoma. What was your reaction like? What was your experience of that, given that you have some medical knowledge? 
the worst was that I knew from the beginning, beginning that he didn't have a chance, uh, which, which he didn't know, at least not at the beginning. I mean, he was a computer person, so it didn't take him that long to find it out. But it's one of these cancers we learned in pathology that you definitely don't want to get, get them. And once they spread, there was no effective therapy at the time. And I knew that. So that was horrendous. And I just couldn't bring myself to tell him. And then he found out and it was just, that was, that was tough. And then something that I, when, well, I always wanted to become a pediatric, pediatric surgeon. So that's why I've done so much anatomy. And this is how I ended up in my PhD. And I did any, any surgery training I could get during my, my medical training. And I would have never considered oncology. So it was not something that came naturally to me. And, but of course I had learned about it because everyone has to learn about it during their medical training. And something that really shook me was that I had considered cancer to be a medical problem above all when it personally affected us i was shocked by the mental and psychological burden that came with it and in hindsight i think that probably the psychological burden is at least as bad as the medical issue because just all of a sudden i mean we went from like we were in our mid-30s you go from having a totally normal life we were discussing about having a third child and then you go to preparing death so to get your head around it from a psychological perspective is is horrendous. So that was something I wasn't prepared for. Did you get any psychological support? Was that uh, embedded in the system in any way? Well, I think we were a bit kind of, well, uh, at the time I was living in Sweden with our two children and my husband was commuting to London on a weekly basis. So he was here for the weekend. So his care was between the UK and a little bit in Sweden at the beginning. And then when he was in a trial in, in Belgium. So the care was already between different places. So we spent a lot of time traveling. And it was at the end of his life when he was dying and he wanted to die at home. We had a fantastic palliative care team um, coming here and there was psychological um, support. But it wasn't so easy because my Swedish at the time was highly embarrassing. Now we're down to somewhat embarrassing. Um, but it was not so easy to find someone who spoke English. And then I saw someone here and I don't think I had the right person. She was very worried about uh, me being suicidal. And um, while I understand that, I was just sitting there and thinking, my children have just lost their father. The last thing I'm going to do now is kill myself. So I was just like, that was just not the situation I was in. And uh, I don't think I was lucky. I probably should have persisted at the time. But I think it's, it's quite sensitive. A friend of mine, so her, we, we met also in Malanoma and uh, he died at they they were friends and they died within the same week so it was kind of odd to have someone who's just like going through the same um she was lucky and she found it very very helpful to have someone to talk to but she also tried different people and i didn't have the persistence it does sound like you were on your own when you had to find all this help Yes, but, you know, just like, I mean, I talk to people when I talk to this person here. I mean, the, the her ideas and her solutions or suggestions just weren't fit for my life. So she suggested to, like, to move closer to my family. I mean, I had a house here. I had a job here. My children were happy here. I was, like, not going to uproot my family. So it was just like, it wasn't, it wasn't quite so easy. But I was glad I had a friend who was, well, glad sounds horrendous, but... I had someone who was exactly in the same position as I was, and that helped a lot. And we still talk, I mean, to the current day, just like my husband died now, tomorrow is going to be eight years that he died. But we still talk, and not as frequently as we, we did back then, but it really helps to have someone who is walking in the same shoes and knows what it's like. And I would still, till today, it's I, I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that. 
I just don't think that it's, you know, it's pathological in a sense. It's just grief and, well, just, it is very hard to cope with it. But it is normal in a way. Not grieving in such a, such a situation would be worse. So in a way, it's physiological. We're supposed to go through this, which doesn't make it any easier or more pleasant. But just having someone else to reflect that somehow somehow helps. Not being alone, it helps just for any patient, but also any relative affected by it. Uh, how long was your husband uh, a cancer patient? So how long did it last? last? Less than a year. He was diagnosed at the beginning of March in 2011 and died in the beginning of February in 2012. In retrospect, what do you think that you would help you as a caregiver? Or what do you think that should change in that area you know because again when we talk about cancer patients it's fair to say that it's very uh, rarely talked about the caregivers and the family and all the other peoples that that are affected by someone's disease well i know that this might now sound sound odd but first because of my background because i was a medic and a researcher i knew pretty much what the situation was so i didn't have false hope or any kind of thoughts that asparagus would cure him. So I think we, and my husband was a very realistic person. So I've, we lived very much hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And so I think that having a bit of a pragmatic streak definitely helps to prepare for what's later. Um, and then I must say, and I know this sounds totally funny, but we've been extremely lucky because of my background and because I was working at university, I could access the latest literature and I could read and I would understand and that informed treatment choices. We had friends who worked uh, for in a pharmaceutical company and she recommended a clinical trial and the time he got was thanks to that very trial. And both of us actually had fantastic employers and I will never forget them that who just backed us. And I showed up at work one day and my um, told my boss that, you know, just like things weren't well and he said to me, so what are you doing here? He said, I want you to pack your things and buy a ticket and go to London. And I don't want to see you back here until you have fixed that. And uh, I very much appreciate that. So our families chipped in, both our parents helped, our siblings helped, our friends were just amazing, both in the UK as well as in Sweden. So we had friends taking care of the kids. I mean, there would somewhat be someone coming in with a bag of like, you know, just like shopping and start cooking for everyone. And um, we've got a support I never thought was possible. So, you know, considering all of that, we I think we got really, we were really lucky in how everything went. So we got a fantastic support uh, all over. If there's one thing that I regret is that, uh, so my sister is actually a pain specialist and he, my husband was in a quite a bit of pain and um, we already were better. What than what most people could get just because we had someone in the family whom I could ring sometimes at three at night and say, and what do I do now? And um, but before he died, the palliative care team placed uh, like a pain catheter, just like a relatively simple thing. And he said that this is was the least pain he had felt in the entire year. And that is something that I regret in hindsight. I should have just insisted on a specialized pain team from the very beginning. And that's something that I think that's easily overlooked. So that even if you cannot change the outcome, you can change the way to it. And pain management is, is probably the most neglected thing all over. Everyone kind of knows about it or that we should be doing it. But to get it right requires practice, patience, expertise, constant monitoring. And that's what most cancer patients simply don't get. So I think there is a lot of suffering that we could avoid by better pain management. 
And I guess that's one of the things I'm looking back and thinking, you know, that yeah, is something we could have done better. It sounds similar as the misconceptions about palliative care, which is to a certain extent also about pain management. <laughs> Yes, well, I think uh, that's always the issue that we talk about palliative and we think of end of life and we can change the name. But um, I don't think that I think just like the concept has to become just more accepted and widespread. And I must say I was deeply impressed by the palliative care um, physicians we had because it was a way of course we had you know i had lectures in palliative care uh, medicine but it's very different to see it applied and it's a very different way of using medicine and for a very very different purpose and yeah it's something that stayed with me so i do believe we all need a bit more of that in our medical training as well it's not just about curing it is about making a a patient better and sometimes the trade-offs are very nasty but we always pretend that our therapies have no side effects and that's obviously not true and palliative care is way more accepting of that and accepting the negative side effects of therapy for in order to make a patient better for a given time you mentioned that your husband was treated in london right Yeah, at the beginning. And then you already lived in uh, Sweden at that time. And then he he was also in Belgium for a clinical trial, right? So do you have any thoughts regarding the differences between these healthcare systems? Anything that you observed? Well, I mean, health is under national authority in our countries. And uh, every country has developed their own special flavor on it. And Unfortunately, there were, I don't think that there is such a thing as the perfect healthcare system because then we could just all copy it and be done, couldn't we? So I think that every system has advantages and disadvantages. So if you have a state-run system, I think the coverage is very appealing because otherwise in other countries, people fall through the cracks. On the other hand, um, the flexibility and um, flexibility is something that you really value when your treatment is no longer responding to the standard of care um, is the degree of flexibility varies considerably between European countries. So in some countries, they will just simply tell you there's nothing more we can do for you and send you home to die. But in other countries, you will still have options. While in some cases, I'm sure that's totally driven by desperation. At the same time, if you're in a time like like we had in melanoma back then, we've had 10 new therapies approved since 2011. And my husband was diagnosed in 2011. So we were just at the beginning of this new wave. So anything at the time was in clinical trials, was experimental. But the people who are alive, who were diagnosed back then and who were still alive today they were all on clinical trials so it was taking a chance and knowing that that chance might not work out but you would still take the chance but your the chance to get that chance vary considerably between countries and um, that's something i think that's widely that's not widely appreciated it's of course a very specific um, situation a very specific setting but if you're a cancer patient in that situation you want a system with a little bit more freedom You probably observe a lot of that, of those complaints or concerns through the Melanoma Patient Network Europe, right? Yes, of course. I mean, just like we are now, thankfully, most Central and Eastern European countries have now access to something, usually not the full range, but like the most effective therapies out of the bundle, um, even Central and Eastern European patients, though at least the CE members of the European Union now have. Now, what what happened is now that we have members from outside the European Union. I mean, we were never like just European Union, we just called it Europe, and we've always been like open, uh, like 
we are European in the sense that we all care about universal healthcare systems, but we're not European by any political term or anything. But now we have uh, patients from Russia, from Ukraine, from Serbia, Macedonia, and their access is still a disaster. So, um, and I mean, we had a case not long ago where there were fake medicines in Ukraine. And uh, yeah, that's something where my blood just boils because what type of person do you have to be to sell a cancer patient fake um, medicine? So every time we think it's getting better, there are new people coming or there are other issues coming and there never seems to be an end to, to worries. There's a lot of research going on uh, in cancer therapies, yet some researchers are disappointed in the sense that a lot of therapies are improving quality of patients' lives, but there's no cure for cancer yet. You know, it's just about prolonging patients' lives or changing the quality of life. Uh, how do you see that concerns, that uh, uh, despair about uh, the non-existence of cures for cancers? Well, I think there's also a lot of, you know, generalization in there. So if you look at the last years, we do have made, we have made progress in cancer. It's not progress, unfortunately, across the board for all cancers. But the first problem is that cancer is not one disease. It's a family of diseases. And it makes a huge difference what type of cancer you have. So that's the first thing. So just saying all cancers in one bucket already, I have stomach pains with that. Then if you look at immune therapies, which have made all the difference for us in melanoma, people complain they don't work for everyone. Well, it's actually some people derive a lot of benefit and others derive no benefit. So to say that they're not really good is just missing the point because there is a population that now survives. I mean, in our, in our, in our patient groups, we had after five years as good as everyone was dead. Now we have close to 50% surviving. That's a huge difference. So to say they're not working, in my opinion, is totally missing it. The issue is they don't work for everyone. And we're now beginning or trying to begin to understand why that is the case. Um, but in the end, I always think it comes down to us not understanding the problem properly enough. Um, I'm already alluded to that earlier on. Cancer is heterogeneous. It changes under therapeutic pressure. So we're not treating the same cancer all the time. But while we treat, we change it. And then we have to treat something else. I think we're just at the beginning of understanding the problem. And to complain that we can't fix a problem that we can't understand or that we don't understand, I think is really missing it. Of course, often the discussions are also linked to the fact that we already pay so much for cancer therapies. And that's, of course, an entirely different topic altogether. I'm not so negative. I, I do believe it's a lot of hard work that goes into finding or making progress in a, in a given cancer. Just Look, for example, what has happened to CML, so chronic myeloid leukemia. It was a deadly disease until Gleevec came through. And now these patients have a nearly normal life expectancy, if not normal life expectancy. That's phenomenal. And I hope that we're going to end up with other cancers, like one cancer after the other. It's just too simplistic to think we can all fix in one go. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Do subscribe to the show and leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. I highly appreciate it. Among other platforms, Faces of Digital Health is also available at the Health Podcast Network, the place to go to search for healthcare, medicine and digital health-related podcasts. Just go to www.healthpodcastnetwork.com. Stay tuned.